The information shared on the Allo podcast is not intended as medical advice. Your medical care decisions should be made in consultation with your physician who is familiar with your specific case. Welcome to the Aloe Podcast from the Aloe Hope Foundation. I'm Bethany Weathersby. And I'm Molly Sherwood. Ma- <laughs> I don't know how we start. Oh, I don't still, either. We're still recovering. <laughs> Bethany's recovering from drinking a little too much this weekend, and I'm recovering from having like a slight millimetrically too much coffee between like one to 1.2 cups, which is just a yeah. terrible adjustment for me. So yeah, just, you we're-, were drinking this morning and I was drinking yesterday. But you're still. I just I'm old. I'm old now. Yeah, Yeah. I feel that way. And it's not just with alcohol. I mean, obviously, if I have more than like two drinks, not okay anymore. But even if I have like a little bit too much gluten because I have a sandwich that was too bready or something. then I'm like, well, I feel a little nauseous the next day. Or if I have like a touch too much dairy in my coffee, I guess it's just like comes with age. Or is it you know what I wonder? Like, is it because we've become mothers and we're now so hyper aware and in tune with our bodies that every tiny change I'm like oh that Starbucks coffee had too much caffeine for me this morning and now I'm gonna sweat all day I think I think it's more like we are so physically pushed to the edge of what's possible (laughs) (laughs) when it comes to energy and just exhaustion and our bodies are like we I can't take much more of this yeah it's like (laughs) it's like to get through a day with the kids I need to be at my like operational best yeah anything that affects that I am just trash after yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So here we are. Here we are. Here we are. But this is going to be a fun episode today, I think. Yeah. This will be fun to chat about. Yeah. I, I'm excited about today's topic because it's definitely not as heavy as some of our other episodes and not as, I guess, kind of detailed and intricate. We're discussing delivery in alloimmunized pregnancies, which is such a sweet topic because the pregnancy itself, at least in my experience with these these pregnancies can be so scary and exhausting and a lot of women don't even know if they will make it to delivery with a living baby mm-hmm. so you know it's this kind of this the ultimate um goal obviously you know there's all these little goals through the pregnancy like oh i can't wait until you know the baby's big enough for an IUT or we get that first MCA scan or we get to viability, you know, third trimester. And this is the ultimate goal. So delivery is just this great relief, I think, in some ways. Yeah, I think so, too, especially for our circumstance where we're going through a pregnancy feeling like our baby isn't safe inside because of the antibodies. It's like, oh my gosh, I just want them out. I want to see them. I want to be able to hold them. And it it just feels like they feel safer on the outside. (laughs) Yes. And it's easier to treat HDFN on the outside as opposed to inside, you know, in utero. So that's always, you know, just a great relief. And so we will both be sharing 
a little bit about our delivery experiences since you and I kind of represent both ends of the spectrum when it comes to severity of disease. So I think today we'll need to talk about, you know, certain concrete things like delivery timing and what you need to remember to ask for about the baby right after they're born. But also I just feel like a big theme of today is going to be talking about finding a way to feel empowered in your birth, even when so Mm -hmm. much is out of your control. So hopefully we can just kind of share back and forth about bits and pieces that we felt empowered about or things Mm -hmm. that we had to let go and things that we weren't willing to let go. Just stuff like that. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Do you want to start by just sharing about timing for delivery? Sure. And I think this is probably one of the most important questions patients have about the birth of their baby. When do I need to deliver? Mm -hmm. Before we dive in, why don't you and I just share like when we delivered all of our babies? Yeah. Or let's should we just do the alloimmunized pregnancies? Yeah, sure. I had two alloimmunized pregnancies and both were induced right at 38 weeks. Okay. What about you? Nice. Um, Okay, so four allo pregnancies. The first was 19 and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. Of course, she didn't survive. The second was 38 weeks and then 34 weeks and four days. And the last was 37 weeks and one day. So that's a pretty big range there. Yeah, it Um, really is. And I think actually you talk a lot about in our severe disease episode, I think there's some super interesting information about your pregnancies that talk about that kind of feed into the differences that you had between the 38 versus 34 and 37 deliveries I thought was really cool. Yes. Uh Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then obviously a huge difference in those pregnancies and the 19 or 20 week delivery of Lucy. So um You can hear more about that in other episodes. But when we're talking about timing of delivery, there are kind of two categories of pregnancy. Those that needed intervention, which is, you know, IUT, intrauterine blood transfusions, Mm -hmm. and then those that did not need any intervention. Yeah. Why don't you talk about the ones that do need intervention? And I'll go over pregnancies that don't need intervention. Okay. All right. So... If the patient is already having IUTs, intrauterine blood transfusions, then it is a bit harder to predict or time the delivery because, you know, if anything ever goes wrong during the procedure, the IUT procedure, they can deliver and then, you know, kind of get the baby out of danger. And also if, you know, between IUTs, sometimes babies don't handle the fetal anemia well. Or go into distress, as you know, one of my sons did, and we had to do an emergency C-section. And so it is just, there's a lot more, I think, factors that can kind of affect timing of delivery. But in general, the delivery is timed based on the last IUT. Okay, so usually, you know, an IUT will last about two or three weeks. So usually they time the delivery for two to three weeks after that last IUT. And doctors have different um, preferences when it comes to when they feel comfortable doing that last IUT. So my doctors both, the goal was always to do the last IUT at 35 weeks and then deliver at 37 or 38 weeks. And we were able to do that with two of my babies and it was great. What about if... 
the patient has elevated titers and then it creeps Mm -hmm. up around that time. Yes. But they haven't had an IUT yet. What about that? Yes. So I think that most doctors do not do that first IUT later than 34 weeks. And again, some are earlier. Some are like, I'll do the last, I'll do a first IUT at 33 weeks. But yeah, most of them, 34 weeks is the latest. So say you get to 35 weeks and your MOM is now at 1.5 or over, Mm -hmm. they usually just deliver. And babies at 35 weeks do great, you know, on the outside. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we also asked Dr. Trevette, too, who's a member of our medical advisory board and also your doctor for your last two pregnancies. Uh, We asked him when he usually plans the patient deliveries for his alloimmunized patients. In the group of women that have had transfusions, we time the delivery based on the last transfusion and how high the baby's hematocrit level is at the time of the last transfusion. So if we find that the last transfusion hematocrit is, let's say, 40, we know that the hematocrit theoretically should fall by about a point every day after the transfusion. And so we want to deliver the baby before the baby becomes severely anemic again. And so if we do the last transfusion, typically somewhere between 35 and 36 weeks. And so we can time the delivery before the baby gets severely anemic again. And so typically that's around 37 to 38 weeks. Okay. And just a reminder, the hematocrit is just a reflection of basically how much red blood cells are in the total volume of blood. So if it's low, then that means of all the blood in this baby, very little of it is actually the red blood cells. And those are the things that are being destroyed during our um, process of aluminization and HDFN. At the end of that last IUT, they check the baby's hematocrit to see what that level is. And if it's, let's say, like I think he said 40 as an example, there's a little formula where you can subtract one point per day after that IUT to just estimate where the baby's blood levels are. And so you can kind of count down. Mm -hmm. So let's say you do deliver two weeks after that IUT, you're looking at a 26, I think. Please help me with my math, if that's right. Yes. <laughs> I'm so Don't bad. Don't asking me, but I was like, in the background, I was like, let me help. She's talking. I'll try to do that math real quick in case I need to jump oh in and be gosh. like, 26. I'm like, I need my six-year-old to be here to help me because she has be- better math <laughs> skills than I do. Anyway, I um, okay, so let's say two weeks after that and you deliver with a hematocrit of 26. That's good because that's like you know, anemic enough to maybe need a transfusion after birth, but not so anemic that the baby is in danger. And Mm -hmm. so that's what he was talking about. Like, you don't want to wait too long where you're delivering a baby in distress. That's what you want to avoid. (laughs) It's already a trip. I mean, going through birth is traumatic. It is stressful on a baby. So you want them to come out as favorable as possible, of course, if you can control it. Yeah. 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 And then we also asked him about timing of delivery if you did not need IUTs. So I wanted us to share that too. Typically, if the baby has not had transfusions, we could go up to and including 38 weeks with those babies. But more often than not, there's some anxiety in terms of the baby becoming anemic over those last few weeks. And so we'd usually 
have babies delivered around 37 weeks. That's helpful that he mentions that it can get tricky because if you haven't had a high MOM and especially one question we see all the time is if your titers are not critical. But the truth is the recommended delivery time, even in that case, is 37 to 38 weeks. And that's even true. So the American College of Gynecologists has this super handy, it's a table of medically indicated reasons for early delivery. And Mm -hmm. our condition is on it. And it is listed as at risk. If If you have aluminization at risk of HDFN, delivery is 37 to 38 weeks. Okay, that's good. That's helpful. It is helpful to have that kind yeah. of that thought in mind. So even if your titer is one or two or four or eight, as long as your doctor and you have determined that the baby is either definitely antigen positive or maybe antigen positive, mm-hmm. that means they're at risk. So the delivery is okay. still recommended to be 37 to 38 weeks. So the only exception really is if you have proven conclusively that the baby is antigen negative, like through the dad's testing the dad, through doing CFF DNA testing and sending that off, or some, it happens less often, but sometimes um, amniocentesis has happened, and then you do know the baby's Mm -hmm. antigen status definitively. But otherwise, we're looking at 37 to 38 weeks. Right. And just to go over why they have that Mm -hmm. recommendation, You know, there are several reasons, but the main ones are, you know, MCA scans are not super reliable after 35 weeks. So that just means we can't truly monitor the baby for anemia very accurately after 35 weeks. And then also the mom's blood volume grows exponentially towards the end of her pregnancy. Sometimes mm-hmm. titers can spike. Um, the baby also has more blood, which I think is easier for our antibodies to detect. And so it's just you kind of are weighing this risk and benefit ratio. The baby is in a potentially hostile environment, right, in our womb, which is, you know, sad, but (laughs) true. And so, you know, is the baby Mm -hmm. safer in or out? And that's kind of, I think throughout the pregnancy, the doctor's always thinking about that. Okay, when do we get to that point where the baby is actually safer out than in? And I think it's around 37 to 38 weeks if there has been no sign of any issues up to that point. Yeah. And I also think it was insightful that Dr. Trevette said that anxiety plays a role too. I mean, there's something to be said for if the mom is extremely anxious. I mean, I know when I was in my most recent pregnancy, I had a bunch of just random things were happening that Mm -hmm. were making me feel totally powerless and stressed. I had multiple hemorrhages. I had kidney stones. I I mean, it was just too many things that were going on. And I just kept feeling like I was tempting fate every additional day that he Mm -hmm. was inside, you know? And so I think it's really important to weigh that aspect of the maternal experience too. Yes, for sure. To sum up about the delivery timing, it can be hard to predict if you've had IUTs, but you kind of work from the latest that your practitioner is willing to do an IUT and then kind of calculate out from the 
hematocrit at the time of the last IUT to plan for a delivery time, but generally maybe aiming to reach 37 to 38 weeks after an IUT might be the norm. And then if a baby is at the point of needing an IUT beyond 35 weeks, usually doctors just deliver. And then if you haven't had an elevated MOM or your titers are not critical, then an induction at 37 to 38 weeks should still be the plan. Yes. Or if your titers are critical, right? I think, and you haven't yeah. had elevated yes. MOMs. Yeah. Okay. So great. We covered when to deliver. And now let's talk about where to deliver, which is another big mm-hmm. topic that patients often are asking about. And a question that we hear a lot in our patient community is, can I have a home birth? Yes, I know. And I hate to deliver this answer because I totally understand mm-hmm. that desire. And I think every woman has uh, ideals about what they would like their birth to be. And it's so hard mm-hmm. to say, you know, so many of us have dreams and expectations about how this will go, but it's really just not recommended or safe to have a home birth if you have an antigen positive baby or a baby that may be antigen positive, regardless of titer, you know, your baby mm-hmm. needs the cord blood drawn immediately after birth. They may right. need to spend some time in the NICU or under lights. And even if your titers have been low, that does not mean that your baby won't need intervention after birth. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Right. Yeah, totally. I think those, you know, the treatments for HDFN after birth are also very time sensitive, meaning if you don't get them started soon enough, the baby can have lasting, you know, lifelong consequences. And so it's just not worth the risk. You need to have access to those blood tests and treatments immediately after birth, just in case. And since the guidelines are to deliver 37 to 38 weeks anyway, you're likely to be in a scenario where you're going to be induced. So that would kind of be a hospital setting to begin with, right? Yeah, totally forgot about that part. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And then, and this is, but still like stuff, I want to try to sprinkle nuggets in here of this is still Mm -hmm. your body, your baby, your birth, and you can find a way to have some say about how you want things to go during your delivery. And I hate to say it because it sounds depressing, but like manage your expectations about what's really in your control and what's not. Uh But I think that I think understanding that can be empowering. You know what I mean? Like hinging your happiness of your birth on things that are not truly in your control that could set you up for frustration and disappointment. Right. But hinging it instead on your emotional reaction and your emotional preparedness and things Mm -hmm. like that, that are more in your control could help you feel empowered, even though many of us have to sacrifice our original ideals, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you can still have a say in what is happening in a hospital setting for your birth. You know, Mm -hmm. I think often women feel kind of bossed around in healthcare settings. So it is kind of hard to speak up, but we can, we can have preferences, even though we're in at the hospital, you know, if we don't want intervention or um, pain management, you know, we can say that we can still be in charge of our own body, (laughs) even though we're at the hospital for our delivery. All right. We decided that a hospital birth is what's most appropriate in this situation in our condition. But how do you decide 
which hospital to deliver at or does it really matter? Yeah, that's another question that we see a lot. You know, should I deliver at this hospital or this one? And again, it really depends on your specific situation and what you and your doctor think is best. So like you mentioned earlier, Molly, babies with HDFN are often born early and therefore need extra monitoring um, and treatments after birth because they're dealing with you know, some prematurity issues often, plus the HDFN. So delivering at a hospital with a good NICU is super important, or at least talk to your doctor about it. But having a plan to transfer baby to Mm -hmm. hopefully close by hospital with a good NICU if you're not delivering at that hospital. For me, my pregnancies involved a lot of intervention So we knew that the babies were severely affected by my antibodies and I needed to deliver in a hospital with a level four NICU that not just a level four NICU, but one that was familiar in treating HDFN. A lot Mm -hmm. of wonderful NICUs still don't see HDFN often. And so my MFMs and all of my prenatal care was out of state. So we had to think, okay, do I want to deliver close to home or in this hospital where my MFM team is, where I know that they know how to treat HDFN after birth. So we chose the hospital out of state because, again, the top priority was to make sure that I was safe and my baby was safe. And so even though it was inconvenient logistically uh, for a lot of reasons, that's the choice we made. And really quick, I had a NICU tour before Mm -hmm. I delivered. And of course, it depends where you are in the pandemic or where we are with COVID because a lot of NICUs don't allow that now. But you can also just set up like a phone call with a neonatologist or the NICU head nurse to just chat about like what it might look like if your baby needs to be in the NICU and ask them questions about how they treat babies with HDFN, you know, just get all of that out of the way ahead of time. And then also that will help you know where to deliver. If they're just like completely clueless, then you can know, "Mm, I think I should Mm -hmm. look elsewhere for, you know, a good place to deliver. Um, But Molly, you had much lower titers and intervention-free pregnancies. So I would love to hear about where you delivered and how you made that decision. Yeah, I was, so my highest titer in both of my aloe pregnancies was four. Okay, And so for my, my first one, I was mostly managed by my OB and she kind of passed me back and forth between the MFMs and her. And Mm -hmm. she delivered at a smaller hospital right next to the big university hospital. And so the big university hospital was the level four NICU, but her hospital could only manage, they had like a NICU, but only for 35 weeks and later, I think was all they were equipped to treat. Okay, And so I kind of made a plan that if anything happened, before 35 weeks, I was just going to march into the big university hospital and mm-hmm. give birth there. But once we made it to 35 weeks, I felt okay. Yeah. Also, I think a big piece of this decision-making process is just your proximity to the nearest really good hospital. Because for my first birth, I did give birth in a nursery that was less equipped than others, but the level four NICU was a mile away. 
So worst case, that was an option. Mm -hmm. But had I not had that convenience, I probably would have from the beginning planned for a more sophisticated NICU, you know? Yes. Uh And then for my following pregnancy, I just, there was too much going on. He was growth restricted and I was getting transfusions for my own anemia, actually. Mm -hmm. Just lots of things. And I was like, no, I'm not messing with this. I'm going to the level four NICU. So we planned on that from the beginning. Hmm. I think I learned a lot and was able to think intuitively about what I needed and what my son needed. And I think that I spent so much time just reaching a place of peace and confidence in what I needed and what I was going to be asking and advocating for that when Mm -hmm. I went in for that induction at the level four NICU, I think even the nurses kind of sensed my vibe of like, okay, this is a seasoned mom who's going to tell us what she mm-hmm. needs. And they totally took a back seat and just listened to exactly what I said my body was doing and needing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I wish there was a way for us to have that seasoned experience From feeling with our, yes, <laughs> I because I was the same way. It was like, you know, I felt that a lot more power, yes. I think, going into it, even though, like I said, I had a lot of intervention and really was not in control of much. Right. But I felt confident in like kind of leading the way. Yes. And yeah, I wish I wish all moms could have that from the very beginning. Yeah. So let's talk about then preparing for delivery. Okay. Pragmatically, in terms of planning for your induction, I mean, chances are we're talking about an induction here. Yes. One thing that is important for our condition is that you have your blood typed and cross-matched with enough time to order the matching blood. So always there is blood accessible on the delivery floor to a mother giving birth Mm -hmm. because it's common that hemorrhages happen. Well, not common, but it happens often enough that it's important to Mm -hmm. have blood available. But for us, because we have antibodies, we have to make sure that any blood we may receive has already been cross-matched and typed to make sure it doesn't have the corresponding antigen that our antibodies would respond to because that would cause a transfusion reaction in us. And that's actually... As an aside, that's the only risk to us that having antibodies carries Mm -hmm. is if we need a blood transfusion, we need to make sure it's the right blood that does not have the corresponding antigens. Right. All this to say, sometimes you have to have your blood ordered from somewhere afar and it might take a while. Mm -hmm. And I think it depends on your hospital. So in my hospital, they wanted me to come in the day prior to test my blood and cross match it and then order the blood in advance. But I think potentially in a more rural area, you may need more time. So I do think it's important to ask your doctor in advance, right? you know, when do we need to have my blood typed and cross match? Because it may not necessarily be the morning of your induction and you don't want to be waiting on induction day for your blood to come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And also they might need that blood for the baby as well. And that baby, the donor blood for the baby also has to be matched with your antibodies because your antibodies are still in that baby when the baby is born. And so you don't want to give the baby donor blood that will immediately be destroyed by the antibodies in his system. So that's also why that blood is super important because we don't really know if the baby will need a transfusion right when they come out or not. 
the blood matching ahead of time. Definitely talk to your doctor about that before mm-hmm. delivery. And let's go over some other tips for just preparing for delivery when you are dealing with an alloimmunized pregnancy. Yeah, I loved your tip about the NICU tour and just chatting with a neonatologist. So what else did you notice was super helpful for you? When I would go in to chat with a neonatologist or the NICU nurse, I think I think I usually actually spoke mostly with her because she would be more hands on with the baby anyway afterwards. But um, I had a list of questions all already written out and just went in with those questions. But a lot of them were just, you know, the basics of will you, you know, test the cord blood? Will you test for these things? How will you support my breastfeeding? You know, are you going to give my baby iron? Please don't give my baby iron. Yeah. Um, Just things that you want to remember afterwards. Explain the iron thing. I feel like we have to explain the iron. Yes. Okay. So this is just one of the most common mistakes I see, not just me, all of us, right, Molly? Mm -hmm. I mean, we see this again and again. After a baby is born, they tend to give the baby iron supplements. And there's this misconception that a baby with HDFN who might be anemic or is anemic needs iron to boost those blood levels. But our babies do not have iron deficiency anemia, which is the most common type of anemia and the most, you know, type of anemia that they're used to seeing in newborn babies or young babies. Mm -hmm. So our, our babies have hemolytic anemia. And that just means they're not low on iron, but they're anemic because their red blood cells are being destroyed by our antibodies. And actually, our babies are at higher risk for iron overload Mm. because there's several reasons. One of the main reasons is that when they have are given a blood transfusion, they are given adult donor blood. And that is, you know, adults have higher iron, they're more iron rich blood. And so they're given iron rich donor blood. And so the babies are often born with extremely high iron or ferritin levels already. Yeah. So I feel like the tip is if a doctor is suggesting giving the baby iron, you should make sure that they're verifying first by checking the ferritin levels. And chances are after checking that in the baby, it will actually be confirmed that the baby is not iron deficient, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, just going in And with those questions already written down, this is preparing ahead of time. And then another tip is Mm -hmm. um, what to pack. You know, is there anything that patients need to pack that's different from a normal, um, you know, packing for a normal delivery? And I don't know, maybe you have some ideas, Molly, but the only thing I could think of was, you know, kind of keep in mind that you might be there longer than a normal delivery. Mm -hmm. And so just keep that in mind and also make sure to pack the patient booklets, which we probably need to talk about more. But, you know, we have these great patient booklets with all of the information that patients need to advocate for the right care. And so we have a post-birth booklet for care for babies with HDFN. And so just having those with you when you go in to deliver can be so helpful. Mm-hmm. And then some patients actually bring in two copies and give one to their care team and then keep one for themselves. 
And so, you know, you could pack those patient booklets. And also if your baby's in the NICU, something that was always helpful is the packing a onesie that has buttons down the front. And that way the wires, you know, usually they have a lot of wires coming out. And so the wires can come out of those little button, I guess the little spaces between the buttons. Um, if you have like a zip up onesie, there's no place for those wires. So, mm-hmm. I mean, most of the time our babies are just, you know, in a diaper if they're yeah. in the NICU. But sometimes you just want to put a cute little outfit on them. So the ones with the buttons down the front are helpful. And then um, I always like to pack something personal for my baby, even though like, you know, expecting them to be under the phototherapy lights. I always thought like, what can I put on them that's just something personal and and sweet and so the hats the passy hair bow socks I think those are the only things um Mm -hmm. also babies again in the NICU with wires all over them it's nice to just see something personal for them you know like a little hat that's just for them or their their own blanket so I always I pack those um anything that you can think of Molly no, actually, a couple things for, you know, for me, for the mother, yes. I was thinking of. So I had a C-section with my first son who was not an aluminized pregnancy. But then after that, I remember so often propping myself up on my elbows and you have no ab strength anyway. So you're constantly Ugh, leaning back on yeah. your elbows. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the hospital sheets are so scratchy and you, you are there for a little bit longer. And mm-hmm. my elbows were totally rubbed raw by then. And oh so my, my next two births, I brought like a flat twin bed sheet that was actually comfy uh-huh. and just laid on that. And it was so nice to have oh. something from home and so easy yeah. to pack. So I just always give that little tip because it's something that you wouldn't think of, but it makes yeah, you feel more comfortable. That's a great idea. Yeah. That's great. I also would always bring my heating pad mm-hmm. because it just immediately gives me like warmth and comfort. Um, oh, so yeah. And you need those for the, you need the heating pad. And I, I don't even know what helps, but you know, the cramps that you get after birth yes. that are just as bad as yes. <laughs> So bad. Yes. Sorry to, we have to warn anybody <sighs> who might listen to this, that you still have contractions after you oh, give man. birth. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I remember thinking, no, why didn't somebody tell me about this? I know. This? No one told me. And it's also, it's brought on, well, so what's happening is your body is trying to shrink your uterus back down to size. And so it's just contracting like you're Mm -hmm. still, you know, laboring. And it's also brought on by the hormones that are released when you're breastfeeding. So I remember being like doubled over while breastfeeding just because it was terrible cramping pain. Yes. So that's so bad. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Another tip is to just have if you can, a partner or family member with you, because you are still going to be advocating for the right care, even, you know, during delivery and after. And that is really hard to do when you're recovering from birthing a baby, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So if you can have someone with you and discuss ahead of time how they can help advocate for you and the baby, afterwards, that's always really um, helpful. And then kind of just discuss like, okay, if the baby is taken to the NICU, do you want that the partner or the helper to go with the baby or to stay with you? Um, Just kind of have a plan in place. And then Mm -hmm. um, also, if you are in a situation like I was, where you have to deliver out of state, 
you can call the Ronald McDonald house that's nearest to the hospital and set up a room for you during, you know, after you, if the baby is in the NICU, um, then the Ronald McDonald house is a fantastic place to stay. Um, and you can also talk to your MFM ahead of time and ask him to help you get that set up before you deliver. Yeah. Okay. I know this can be super overwhelming. It is a lot to remember, (laughs) but we can help, you know, and I hope we'll keep things pretty succinct in terms Mm -hmm. of stuff that you really should probably keep in mind when you're going in, but also those patient booklets you talked about, we have one for pregnancy and one for after birth. They have all those things you need to remember. And I think it'd be great. You can review them in advance, but then also give that job to your birth partner. They can review it too and kind of just have it in mind and help advocate for you, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yes. These patient booklets are so helpful. We've heard a lot of patients come back and tell us that they loved having them with them during their deliveries and hospital stays. It just gave them this level of safety kind of that they really needed. So another really important way to prepare for delivery is to create a birth plan ahead of time. And Molly, I know that you kind of mastered that, (laughs) I think, at least in your last delivery with your youngest son. And this is also kind of leading us into, you know, the different ways to deliver as well, this idea of a birth plan. So can you just share how you made your birth plan ahead of time and then also kind of learned how to still feel empowered during this birth experience that is high risk? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, firstly, my birth plan was very short. So Mm -hmm. I think it's key to just, and it's so hard, like we said, it's so hard to let go of all the things you read about delayed cord clamping and the importance of skin to skin within the first 30 minutes and making sure your baby tries to latch within the first hour. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really, really easy to get caught up in your preferences for those things. And while I still think it's great Um, If you desire to choose a few things that are critical to you and maybe you do have an opinion and you've been informed about these things, it it runs the risk of having you feel disappointed if those things are not possible. So Mm -hmm. I think that setting reasonable expectations is just critical. So for me, it was just focus on the baby, keep the baby healthy, Mm -hmm. draw the baby's cord blood, because we'll talk about that. We want to make sure the baby's cord blood gets drawn and saves them a big heel prick because we want to get some information about their blood when they're born. And then for me, I just asked that they not offer me pain meds. I wasn't going to say anything gung-ho, like absolutely do not ever give me this thing. I Mm -hmm. just tried to say, you know what, I'm taking this into my hands. I'll make the choice. If I do ask for it, that's okay, but please don't offer it to me. Mm -hmm. And that was it. That was my birth plan. And my doctor jotted it down on my chart and had me sign it. I signed it and she said, they'll scan it in. And then there's just had it. So nice. It And it was very short. You know, I don't think it's super helpful if you have a laundry list of must haves. And I also would add breastfeeding. I know I kind of said like, you know, who cares if you get to breastfeed in the first hour? Of course, that's wonderful. Yeah. But I was able to breastfeed all three of my boys for over a year, which was my plan all along. And I don't think I was able to nurse any of them within an hour of their birth. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just there are things that, like you said, come with time. Looking back, you realize, wow, that actually was not super critical for me to be 
so anxious about, of course. It's great to be informed and have a preference. But otherwise, I think just latching onto a few things that feel Mm. like they're within your control gives you the best chance of success and reward, you know. And I say this even after, so that birth that I was talking about, my most recent birth, um, I kind of told, there are certain things I knew about my body that I was able to share with the doctors and the nurses right away. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, once my water breaks, I think I'm going to deliver pretty quickly. So Mm -hmm. they were aware of that. And they totally took me at my word about that. And, you know, when it was time to be checked and I was eight centimeters, but I felt very, very close, I had two more contractions and I was like, no, it's time. It's time. And Mm. they didn't doubt me at all. They ran right back in and checked me again. And I think we just established from the beginning that I felt comfortable with my body's needs. Yeah. And they completely, I think, picked up on that and Mm -hmm. respected it. And then following, though, after his birth, and maybe I'll share about this in another podcast in a little bit more detail, but my placenta was retained. And so it did not deliver. And I started to hemorrhage after that. And it was 45 minutes or so of them digging in there and trying to pull out little bits of my placenta, which was more painful than the birth itself. And eventually... Sounds terrible. Oh, my gosh. I think, you know, we talk about maternal mental health support. I probably need some PTSD support from this. (laughs) I haven't done anything. It's terrible. Anyway, so... And I remember... Oh, this is another thing I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. So um, while I'm bleeding and they're in there and I hate to describe in great detail how painful it is, but it's very, very painful. Yes. Um, And they're trying to lay him on me and be like, oh, he's so cute. Look at him. And Uh I just I couldn't touch him. I was like, please get him off me. He's going to fall. I can't. I mean, I was in terrible pain. I was crying, you know. Yeah. And it just it makes me think about how often we hear this narrative of, oh my gosh, the first time you lay eyes on your baby, it's just the most miraculous moment of your life. Mm -hmm. And I can say hand on heart, I did not feel that with any of my three births. I just didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of pressure on moms to have this ideal, very specific, like dream meeting with your baby. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't have that, you feel guilty or like, this regret, you know, or like, oh, I didn't have a good birth experience because it wasn't that typical, the stereotype that we are kind of fed. But mm-hmm. you fall in love with your baby over time. And that is really sweet. Yes. I think just the 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 months after you meet your baby, that's when the real, I think, relationship forms. Yeah, that's so true. There's so many reasons why achieving that dream moment and that Mm -hmm. dream experience of birth are so it's so difficult for any women, but especially for us. I mean, we're already going through this high risk, intensely emotional situation, and then you have to physically give birth. How are you supposed to feel perfectly elated and joyful the moment after you gave? It's crazy. It makes no sense. And then many of us have our babies, you know, they have to go to the NICU or they can't be with us afterwards for one reason Mm -hmm. or another. And that's okay because yeah. like you said, now is your time. Your time is now beginning with them. Now yes. your love grows with them now that they're out, even yes. if they couldn't be next to you, even if you were in the middle of experiencing whatever you were experiencing. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely glad we're touching on this because I think it's so important to share. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do, you know, in my case, it was it was really magical with my three youngest because you know, our daughter was stillborn. 
And then we were told we could not have any more children after that. And so mm-hmm. it just was this like dream come true. Just the fact that we were able to have living babies, you know, mm-hmm. and that was absolute like pure joy. Um, wow. I think obviously in a different way from the normal birth um, and, and, you know, the way my babies were born, they're very different. You know, my daughter, Nora, we were, I was induced. She, it was a whole, like the whole induction was three hours. She literally came out on the first push. <laughs> <And> yeah. <laughs> I'm always like her older brother, who was over 10 pounds, really oh. like paved the way for her. <laughs> literally <laughs> paved the way. Oh my gosh. Maybe that's too, too much detail there, but no, no, never um, too much, never too much detail. But like that was, you know, my birth plan was just have a living baby mm-hmm. at any cost. Yes. In a way I was like, I don't even care what happens to me. I don't care. I want my baby to live and be alive and, and you know, have a heartbeat when she's born. And that was mm-hmm like miraculous that felt miraculous but yeah all those things that you mentioned like I didn't get to breastfeed her right away I got I got to hold her because I said I really want a photo of her and me and her before you're taking her off to the NICU and so we have like three photos and the NICU nurse is standing right there waiting to whisk her away um and then my my next baby was born by emergency c-section and my husband wasn't even there because I was going in for my fourth IUT. He was four hours away in, in Alabama. (laughs) And the first time he saw his son was I texted him while he was driving. He saw him in a text, (laughs) which is terrible. Talk about Uh, not, you know, an anticlimactic birth moment. But it was like, he's alive. He's alive and he's here. And I didn't even get to hold him, you know, Um, I got to see him for one second and then they, you know, took him away. Um, Mm -hmm. But I felt just so overwhelmed with joy because that was my my main birth plan, you know, was just have a living baby and all of the rest kind of didn't really matter. Mm -hmm. But I know that that is due to my past experience with the stillbirth and all of the, you know, intervention that was involved in my pregnancy. So, um, but that's so valuable and it's really true in the grand scheme of things, no matter what, in any pregnancy, just a healthy baby. Yeah. That's the goal. I mean, that's the, that's what we're doing, right? We're, we're having a baby. That's the goal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is what we're doing. We're (laughs) having a baby. That's all boys. Not to oversimplify, (laughs) but you know, I know, but really I think it's just helpful to hear, wait a minute, all of the hubbub about perfect this and yeah. perfect that and setting yeah. this up and having somebody say and do and prepare and just have a healthy yeah. baby and yeah. you win. And also, I mean, there are, I think the grief um, and the losses are part of this, I think. And 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 not mm. to be, um, you don't need to feel guilty if you're grieving or mourning the loss of what you expected. That's totally normal. And, you know, even with mm. my last one, I, I really wanted to try a VBAC. So, you know, I had the emergency C-section and then my last one, I just, I really wanted to have a VBAC. 
And I, I tried to convince my doctors because I'm like, you know, I, I birthed the daughter in one push. You know, I can do this. And, and we really discussed it at length. And because I would have to be induced and I'd had all these IUTs and needles in the uterus, you know, they said it's just, you, you know, your uterus could rupture. So do you really want to risk that in order to have the birth yeah. that you want? Or do you really want to ensure a living, healthy baby? And so I had to grieve that feedback, you know, and, and grieve the fact that I had to have another C-section, even though I didn't want to at all. Um, but what's, what's the priority? It's the healthy baby. And my doctors really insisted that that was the best way to do that. So yeah, losses and grief are a part of delivery. I think when it comes to this type of pregnancy, Mm -hmm. I think so too. And just the process of not dropping your, well, yeah, dropping your expectations and finding a way to just be peaceful with what your outcome is in your, in your pregnancy story. That Mm -hmm. is a loss. You know, you do have to really work through and reconcile Mm -hmm. those things. So great tips and good reminders to focus on those few main goals Mm -hmm. instead of this long list of must haves, um, and try to hinge, that, you know, those expectations on what can I control? I was trying to think what, what are some, are there any little things that you like were able to choose that you felt like that empowered you? (laughs) Um, let's see. I, (laughs) one was kind of funny actually. So my favorite moment of my most recent birth and just did I? Already, I feel like I've already said this, but what strikes me as so um, important about my most recent birth is that it was with certainty the most traumatic birth I have had. Oh my god! But I still feel the most empowered about yeah, it because that is I had so prepared so well, you know, and I felt yeah. still in control of my birth process. But anyway, um, even though I was on continuous monitoring because it was a VBAC for me, mm-hmm. um, we I was able to be in a tub. And that was great. That just helped a lot for some reason for me, just with my pain. And I remember I have this moment. I'll probably cry talking about it. I'll never forget it. Uh I was like forehead to forehead with my husband. Uh Uh-huh. I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. That's okay. It's it's a a special moment. It is. Yeah. And he was on the outside of the tub and we were Mm -hmm. just sitting there together and Mm -hmm. we just... I was in so much pain, of course, you know, mm-hmm. and but we just knew what was coming and what was about to happen. And it was just yeah. this total moment of calm together that I'll never, ever forget. And um, that was a really special moment. Mm, and also beautiful. He, <laughs> he had surprised me by learning acupressure techniques, I oh, guess, on his so own. Nice. So, <laughs> well, he was like, do you want me to try an acupressure technique? And I was like, okay. And so he like grabbed my hand and did something and it felt terrible. And I was like, oh, oh no. God, no, stop. Do not just stop. Don't do that. <laughs> so I got to express my preferences oh, there and gosh. it was totally respected and heard. So apparently I do not want acupressure when I'm in, pre- oh, when I am, you know, in labor. <laughs> or at least, at least your husband's version of acupressure. Yeah. Apparently he didn't yeah. do I don't know. It oh. just, it was not right. So I didn't yeah. like that. <laughs> but I think that's great that you got to have the, the water birth. Well, was he, he wasn't born. No, in the, he, okay. they didn't want me to be, I don't know if that's true everywhere just because it was high risk, but they didn't want me to give birth in the water. But once yeah. I was close, I had to move to the, uh, okay. to the bed, but I spent most of the more intensive part of the labor in water, which was really mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's such a sweet moment with your yeah. husband though. That was Ugh. really the best moment of the whole thing. Not even yeah. the actual birth itself. You know, it was just that moment. Right. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I was trying to think of any things, any choices that I was able to make during mine. Um, mm. One thing was that I was just, I really wanted my babies to have breast milk, um, oh, yeah. even though I couldn't breastfeed them. And so when they were not with me, I just was, you know, I insisted I want them to have the breast milk that I'm pumping. Um, and that made me feel really good as his mother that I was able to make sure that he was getting that, even though I didn't have him with me. Um, mm-hmm. And also some hospitals have this more accessible than others, but donor breast milk is sometimes yeah. an option. If for some reason, you know, you are just recovering and it's hard for you to worry about expressing or you're trying and you're not expressing enough at that moment. Mm-hmm. Some hospitals do have donor breast milk pretty accessible too, if that's yeah. something that's important to you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk about, I think we already talked about how, did we talk about how, how to give birth? I don't know. Um, you just kind of, it just happens. Yeah, you just push sorry. it out and, you know, no, well, no, no. We need to talk about, uh, <laughs> um, we need to talk about the, oh, what you need to ask for with regards to the cord blood when the baby is Okay. Born. Wait, wait, really quick. Let me just say, or do we skip something? Let's do that really quick. Let me just say, yeah. Um, Allo immunization does not automatically mean that you have to have a C-section. Yeah. Um, a lot of women ask, am I going to have to have a C-section? Um, but there is a higher chance of needing a C-section with an HDFN baby, you know, compared to a non-high-risk pregnancy, of course, because, sure. because you're not going all the way to 40 weeks. Usually you're not, um, you're going to be inducing... And sometimes that can lead to C-section or, you know, in my case, if the baby's going into distress, you need to get baby out quickly. That's a Mm C-section. So I think there is a higher chance of needing a C-section. But just because you have antibodies, it does not automatically mean you will need a C-section. Yes, that's a really good point to add. Yeah. And it doesn't totally rule out. It completely makes sense in your case why a VBAC was not appropriate for you. But it doesn't take it completely off the table in every situation. So that's right. another thing to keep in yeah, mind. Just something ask your to doctor. talk to. Yeah, talk mm-hmm. about your doc. Something doctor. to talk about with your doctor. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So Molly, tell us. So now our baby is born. Yeah. And tell us about kind of what immediately needs to happen then. Okay. So I think it's important to focus on just what you will want to ask the care team for in advance before birth to say, hey, as soon as the baby is born, make sure you draw enough cord blood and here's what you need to have drawn. So you want to have their bilirubin checked. Mm -hmm. You need a complete blood count, CBC, and that covers all the other little nuances, hemoglobin, hematocrit, neutrophils, thrombocytes, reticulocytes. So bilirubin. CBC, mm-hmm. and right. they call it the DAT. It's called a direct agglutination test. It's also called the direct Coombs test sometimes. And it basically tells if there are antibodies binding to the baby's blood, which would indicate that the baby does is having active hemolysis and does have HDFN. Okay. So bilirubin, CBC, and a DAT. One caveat is that There have been reported cases in certain antibodies of a baby having HDFN and being affected, but still having a negative DAT. 
So there's also an IAT, an indirect agglutination test. Mm -hmm. And so what that does is looks for free floating antibodies in the baby's blood, even if they're not necessarily bound to the blood cells. And we do go into, we have a provider primer, which is like a pretty detailed uh, information, piece of information for geared for providers, but really for anybody. And it talks about specific antibodies where this has happened, where a negative DAT might happen. So for the sake of just saying it here, it's anti big C, little c, FYA, good, H, JRA, M, and anti MTA antibodies. So, man, I have never heard of some of those. <laughs> it's like those must be the rarest so, of the rare. <laughs> yes, yes. But it does happen, and so you can check. So even if you have a negative DAT, if there's any suspicion that the baby might still have HDFN, you can do the IAT, or you can just have the baby's antigen status blood typed. You know, you can just see what their antigen status mm-hmm. is. Um, so also, I will add, it's not the end of the world if you don't get this. The alternative is just you stick the baby's heel. It's just a little unfortunate to lose the opportunity to get a bunch of blood at birth. Right. And you, you don't have to stick the baby in this case, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, I wanted to point out that women who have had IUTs often have a mm-hmm. negative DAT test after birth because that baby is mostly or fully donor blood. And the donor blood is antigen negative. Antibodies are not attached to that donor blood. So if you have had IUTs, I mean, the Coombs test is really not, it's really not important, right, Molly? I mean, I don't see why it would be important. Yeah, by that point, you've established that the baby is antigen positive. Or or the DAT. I think I called it Coombs and DAT, but same thing. Yeah. Because you know that the baby already has HDFN and Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, is affected by the antibodies. Okay, so I think that's, almost everything. Do we need a recap? Yeah, let's recap. So you'll want to discuss with your doctor when the time to deliver will be, but chances are it'll be 37 to 38 weeks, assuming your baby is antigen positive or might be antigen positive. And it'll probably be an induction or a scheduled C-section if that's the decision that you make with your care team. Right. Or it could be an earlier delivery if you're having IUTs. Right. I'm glad you added that. And we would also encourage you to kind of decide ahead of time where you'd like to deliver and be thoughtful about the NICU. So if I had critical titers, I would be looking for a level four NICU, but that's personal choice and something you should weigh kind of depending on your access to care. And you also should make sure you plan to have your blood drawn and cross-matched in time before your delivery so that the right blood is available on the floor for you should you need it at delivery. Another thing I want to add is focusing on the mental health aspect. Make sure you take some time to mentally prepare for your delivery because I think that would be critical for your own empowerment through the whole journey. And once the baby is born, you'll want to ask them to draw the cord blood and have the DAT test run if you aren't already certain that the baby is antigen positive. You need the bilirubin and the CBC, a complete blood count. Nice. And one more thing, one more thing. Yes. Um, In our next episode, we will talk about what to expect in the weeks following your baby's birth. Mm -hmm. But one thing we did touch on in this episode that I want to recap is that babies typically do not need iron supplements Mm -hmm. since this is not iron deficiency anemia. This is hemolytic anemia. So if your doctor suggests 
giving baby iron or including an iron rich formula or anything like that. Um, just ask them to check the baby's ferritin level first because our babies are at high risk for iron overload. Yes. So glad you added that. Nice. Nice recap. Yay. We did it. (laughs) If you, your partner, or someone close to you has antibodies in their pregnancy, we are here for you. You're not alone. We have a great resource library on our website at allohopefoundation.org. That's allo spelled A-L-L-O, hopefoundation.org. The Allo Podcast is a production of the Allo Hope Foundation. It was researched and written by Bethany Weathersby and me, Molly Sherwood. It is produced and edited by CJ Hausch and Eric Hurst of Media Club. The Allo Podcast is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. Johnson.